Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you on a special edition of Reading Through the New Testament. This is the long-awaited, I'm sure highly anticipated, reading of the preface uh, to Romans by Martin Luther from 1546. I'm sure many of you are dying to hear this. I'm excited about it, but... Um, for those of you, or maybe we'll get tons of people who are going to be fascinated by, by Luther, and that, actually that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, this is really helpful. Remember, Luther was a very important theologian. He's really our grandfather in the faith. Um, as Baptists, we're Protestants. We're committed to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, Luther was the, the one used by God. He was, he was, I've heard him described as God's volcano. He uh, was used by God at a unique time in the history of the church to help recover the truth of God's grace and salvation. And so, yeah, we're going to read this. Remember Luther, the book of Romans was a big deal for him. It was a understanding that book was very insightful and helped him to grasp the truth about what God had done for us in Christ. So I want to read this and maybe I'll make some comments throughout it, but uh, we'll see what happens here. So, This is his preface to Romans. He says this, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Therefore, I too will do my best, so far as God has given me power, to open the way into it through this preface, so that it may be the better understood by everyone. Heretofore, it has been badly obscured by glosses and all kinds of idle talk, though in itself it is a bright light, most sufficient, almost sufficient to illuminate the entire Holy Scriptures. To begin with, we must have knowledge of its language and know what St. Paul means by the words law, sin, grace, faith, righteousness, flesh, spirit, and the like. Otherwise, no reading of the book has any value. The little word law you must here not take in human fashion as a teaching about what works are to be done or not done. That is the way with human laws. A law is fulfilled by works, even though there is no heart in in the doing of them. But God judges according to what is in the depths of the heart. For this reason, his law too makes its demands on the inmost heart. It cannot be satisfied with works, but rather punishes as hypocrisy and lies, the works not done from the bottom of the heart. Hence all men are called liars in Psalm 116 verse 11. Because no one keeps or can keep God's law from the bottom of the heart. For everyone finds in himself displeasure in what is good and pleasure in what is bad. If now there is no willing pleasure in the good, then the inmost heart is not set on the law of God. Then too there is surely sin, and God's wrath is deserved, even though outwardly there seem to be many good deeds and an honorable life. Hence St. Paul concludes in chapter 2 verse 13 that the Jews are all sinners saying that only the doers of the law are righteous before God. He means by this that no one, in terms of his works, is a doer of the law. Rather, he speaks to them thus, You teach one must not commit adultery, 
but you yourselves commit adultery. Chapter 2, verse 22. And again, in the passing judgment upon another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. Chapter 2, verse 1. This as is as if to say, you live a fine outward life in works of the law, and you pass judgment on those who do not so live. You know how to teach everyone. You see the speck that is in the eye of another, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Matthew 7, verse 3. For even though you keep the law outwardly with works from fear of punishment or love of reward, nevertheless, you do all this unwillingly without pleasure in and love for the law, but with reluctance and under compulsion. For if the law were not there, you would prefer to act otherwise. The conclusion is that from the bottom of your heart, you hate the law. What point is there then in your teaching others not to steal if you yourself are a thief at heart and would gladly be one outwardly if you dared? Though to be sure the outward work does not lag far behind among such hypocrites. So you teach others, but not yourself. Nor do you know, do you you yourself know what you are teaching? You have never yet understood the law correctly. Moreover, the law increases sin, as St. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 22. Because the more the law demands of men what they cannot do, the more they hate the law. For this reason, he says in chapter 7, verse 14, the law is spiritual. What does that mean? If the law were for the body, it could be satisfied with works. But since it is spiritual, no one can satisfy it, unless all that you do is done from the bottom of your heart. But such a heart is given only by God's Spirit, who fashions a man after the law, so that he acquires a desire for the law in his heart, doing nothing henceforth out of fear and compulsion, but out of a willing heart. The law is thus spiritual, and that it will be loved and fulfilled with such a spiritual heart, and requires such a spirit. Where that spirit is not in the heart, there sin remains. Also displeasure with the law and hostility toward it, even though the law itself is good and just and holy. Accustom yourself then to this language, that doing the works of the law and fulfilling the law are two very different things. The work of the law is everything that one does or can do toward keeping the law of his own free will or by his own powers. But since in the midst of all these works and along with them there remains in the heart a dislike of the law and compulsion with respect to it, these works are all wasted and have no value. That is what St. Paul means in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, By works of the law will no man be justified in God's sight. Hence you see that the wranglers and sophists practice deception when they teach men to prepare themselves for grace by means of works. How can a man prepare himself for good by means of works, if he does good works only with aversion and unwillingness in his heart? How shall a work please God if it proceeds from a reluctant and resisting heart. To fulfill the law, however, is to do its works with pleasure and love, to live a godly and good life of one's own accord, without the compulsion of the law. This pleasure and love for the law is put into the heart by the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 5. But the Holy Spirit is not given except in, with, and by faith in Jesus Christ, as St. Paul says in the introduction. Faith, moreover, comes only through God's word or gospel, which preaches Christ, saying that he is God's son and a man, and has died and risen again for our sakes, as he says in chapters 3, 4, and 10. So it happens that faith alone, 
makes a person righteous and fulfills the law. For out of the merit of Christ, it brings forth the Spirit, and the Spirit makes the heart glad and free, as the law requires that it shall be. Thus good works emerge from faith itself. That is what St. Paul means in chapter 3. After he has rejected the works of the law, it sounds as if he would overthrow the law by this faith. No, he says, we uphold the law by faith. That is, we fulfill it by faith. So, the first thing there that Paul, that, that Luther's, uh, this, this is my comments now, right, is wanting us to know is the word law. And he's highlighting the fact the law doesn't simply mean that you should be obedient, but that you should do it from the bottom of your heart with full sincerity and such. And to the extent that we obey the law because we're afraid of the law or we don't want to be embarrassed or whatever else, it shows that we really don't love the law. And he's highlighting to his, his point in all of this is to say, there's no way that we can save ourselves by the law because none of us uh, before coming to Christ and even after we don't do it perfectly, uh, does the law completely from the bottom of our heart. But whenever God justifies us and accepts us by faith in his son, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to work that in us so that now we want to love God from the bottom of our heart. We want to love our neighbor. We want to, we love the law. The law is good and just and holy. And so that's what he's trying to get us to understand the law. And he's also trying to see too, to point out that, because some people would say, right, well, you can prepare yourself for, to receive God's grace by doing works. And Luther is saying, no, how is that possible? It's impossible for us if we're doing these things only because of, uh, we don't really love the law. We're just doing stuff because we don't want to get in trouble. And uh, his point is that it, everything begins with grace. It begins with God's free kindness in Christ received through faith. The second term he's going to describe now is sin. And he says this, Sin in the scripture means not only the outward works of the body, but also all the activities that move men to do these works, namely the inmost heart with all its powers. Thus, the little word do ought to mean that a man falls away all the way and lives in sin. Even outward works of sin do not take place unless a man plunges into it completely with body and soul. And the scriptures look especially into the heart and single out the root and source of all sin. So we would say, Luther, well, what is the source and root of all sin? This is what Luther says, which is unbelief. Unbelief, which is unbelief in the inmost heart. As therefore faith alone makes a person righteous and brings the spirit and pleasure in good outward works, so unbelief alone commits sin and brings forth the flesh and pleasure in bad outward works, as happened to Adam and Eve in paradise in Genesis 3. Hence Christ calls unbelief the only sin when he says in John 16, 8-9, the spirit will convince the world of sin because why? They do not believe in me. For this reason too, therefore, good or bad works take place as the good or bad fruits. There must first be in the heart faith or unbelief. Unbelief is the root, the sap, and the chief power of all sin. For this reason, in the scriptures it is called the serpent's head and the head of the old dragon, which the seed of the woman, Christ, must tread underfoot, as was promised to Adam, Genesis 3.15. Between grace and gift... So, okay, so he's talked about sin, right? That's helpful. It's helpful. Sin is not simply the external acts that we do. Its root is in unbelief. It lies in our hearts. Sometimes we are so prone to think that sin is primarily the things that we externally do or don't do. 
but Luther tackles it right in the center and the source and the sap from which it runs, which is unbelief, rejection of God, and unbelief in his promises and in who he is. And that ultimately is the source of all sin. Our biggest problem is not the external fruits that we show. The biggest problem is unbelief. So now he's going to talk about grace and gift. He says, between grace and gift, there is this difference. Grace actually means God's favor or the goodwill which in himself he bears toward us, by which he is disposed to give us Christ and to pour into us the Holy Spirit with his gifts. This is clear from chapter 5, verse 15, where St. Paul speaks of the grace and gift in Christ. The gifts and the Spirit increase in us every day, but they are not yet perfect since there remain in us the evil desires and sins that wage war against the Spirit, as he says in Romans 7 and Galatians 5, and the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, as foretold in Genesis 3. Nevertheless, grace does so much that we are accounted completely righteous before God. For his grace is not divided or parceled out, as are the gifts, but takes us completely into favor for the sake of Christ, our intercessor and mediator. And because of this, the gifts are begun in us. In this sense, then, you can understand chapter 7. There, St. Paul still calls himself a sinner, and yet he can say in chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, simply because of the incompleteness of the gifts and of the Spirit. Because the flesh is not yet slain, we are still sinners. But because we believe in Christ and have a beginning of the Spirit, God is so favorable and gracious to us that he will not count the sin against us or judge us because of it. Rather, he deals with us according to our faith in Christ until sin is slain. So that's what grace and gifts are. Grace, God's favor, is permanent. It, it is, it's always and it's complete. That's why God doesn't judge us on account of our sins. But his gifts, you know, so the spirit and all those things, right? It, it, may, it may, not, we may not get the full gifts until the resurrection from the dead, right? So all the benefits, we don't experience all the benefits, all the gifts fully until the resurrection from the dead. But we have God's favor, his kindness, his disposition, his, I guess you could say, attitude towards us, his favor uh, towards us, his disposition um, towards us is is always 100% grace. So he's now going to talk about what is faith now, the next term, faith. Faith is not the human notion and dream that some people call faith. When they see that no improvement of life and no good works follow, although they can hear and say much about faith, they fall into the error of saying, faith is not enough. One must do works in order to be righteous and be saved. This is due to the fact that when they hear the gospel, they get busy and by their own powers create an idea in their heart which says, I believe. They take this then to be a true faith. But as it is a human figment, an idea that never reaches the depths of the heart, nothing comes of it either, and no improvement follows. Faith, however, is a divine work in us, which changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. John 1, 12-13 It kills the old Adam and makes us altogether different men, in heart and spirit and mind and powers. And it brings with us, with it, the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good works incessantly. 
It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. I want to stop real quick there. Notice how Luther opens up defining faith. It is a divine work in us. Now that's, that's fascinating because do we often start with that, that first aspect of faith from God's side? And Luther is saying that it's possible to have a very, very, very wrong idea of what faith is. And he says faith is a divine work in us which changes us and makes us to be born again of God. It, faith kills the old Adam. It kills the old Adam, drowns him, and then connects us to Jesus Christ and makes us alive by the Spirit. So, very helpful. He says faith, this is, I love this. This is a great definition. You should Maybe you should write this one down. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. I'm going to reread that because that is so good. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. So faith is living because it comes from God. It doesn't come from dead me. We're old. The old Adam is dead. It comes from the life who is God. So it's a living thing, but it's a daring confidence. It is completely resting and trusting in God's grace and God's favor towards us, trusting in God's promise to us in Christ. Does that describe your faith and my faith? Now, of course, it's going to go up and down in experience, but that is a beautiful definition of faith. And it is so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This God is a rock to us. So Luther continues, This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and with all his creatures. And this is the work which the Holy Spirit performs in faith. Because of it, without compulsion, a person is ready and glad to do good to everyone. Turn the page. To serve everyone, to suffer everything out of love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. Thus it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. Beware, therefore, of your own false notions and of the idle talkers who imagine themselves wise enough to make decisions about faith and good works and yet are the greatest fools. Pray God that he may work faith in you. Otherwise, you will surely remain forever without faith, regardless of what you may think or do. Righteousness, then, is such a faith. It is called the righteousness. So he's going to talk about what righteousness is now. It is called the righteousness of of God because God gives it and counts it as righteousness for the sake of Christ our mediator and makes a man to fulfill his obligation to everybody. For For through faith a man becomes free from sin and comes to take pleasure in God's commandments. Thereby he gives God the honor due him and pays him what he owes him. Likewise he serves his fellow men willingly by whatever means he can and thus pays his debt to everyone. Nature, free will, and our own powers cannot bring this righteousness into being. 
For as no one can give himself faith, neither can he take away his own unbelief. How then will he take away a single sin, even the very smallest? Therefore, all that is done apart from faith or in unbelief is false. It is hypocrisy and sin, Romans fourteen twenty three. no matter how good a showing it makes. Now he's going to help us to grasp what the terms flesh and spirit mean. Flesh and spirit you must not understand as though flesh is only that which has to do with unchastity and spirit is only that which has to do with, with what is inwardly in the heart. Rather, like Christ in John 3, 6, Paul calls everything flesh that is born of the flesh. The whole man with body and soul, mind and senses, because everything about him longs for the flesh. Thus, you should learn to call him fleshly, too, who thinks, teaches, and talks a great deal about lofty spiritual matters, yet does so without grace. From the works of the flesh in Galatians five nineteen through 21 you can learn that Paul calls heresy and hatred works of the flesh. And in Romans 8, 3, he says that the law is weakened by the flesh. Yet this is said not of unchastity, but of all sins and above all of, of unbelief which is the most spiritual of all vices. On the contrary, you should call him spiritual, who is occupied with the most external kind of works, as Christ was when he washed the disciples' feet, John 13, 1-14, and Peter when he steered his boat and fished. Thus the flesh is a man who lives and works, inwardly and outwardly in the service of the flesh's gain and of this temporal life. The spirit is the man who lives and works inwardly and outwardly in the service of the spirit and of the future life. Without such a grasp of these words, you will never understand this letter of St. Paul, nor any other book of Holy Scripture. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, beware of all teachers who use these words in a different sense, no matter who they are. Even Origen, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, by the way, those are, those are like early church fathers, right? Really big ones, Origen, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, and others like them or even above them. And now we will take up the epistle. It is right for a preacher of the gospel in the first place by revelation of the law and of sin to rebuke and to constitute as sin everything that is not the living fruit of the Spirit and of faith in Christ. In order that men should be led to know themselves and their own wretchedness and to become humble and ask for help. This is therefore what St. Paul does. He begins in chapter 1 to rebuke the gross sins and unbelief that are plainly evident. These were and still are the sins of the heathen who live without God's grace. He says, Through the gospel there shall be revealed the wrath of God from heaven against all men because of their godless lives and their unrighteousness. For even though they know and daily recognize that there is a God, nevertheless, nature itself, without grace, is so bad that it neither thinks nor honors God. Instead, it blinds itself and goes steadily from bad to worse until, after idolatry, it blatantly commits the most shameful sins, along with all the vices, and also allows others to commit them unreprimanded. In chapter 2, he extends his rebuke to include those who seem outwardly to be righteous and who commit their sins in secret. Such were the Jews, and such are all the hypocrites who without desire or love for the law of God lead decent lives, but at heart hate God's law, and yet are quick to judge other people. This is the nature of all hypocrites, to think of themselves as pure, and yet to be full of covetousness, hatred, pride, and all uncleanness. Matthew twenty-three twenty-five through 28 these are they who despise God's goodness and in their hard-heartedness heap wrath upon themselves. Thus, St. Paul, as a true interpreter of the law, leaves no one without sin, but proclaims the wrath of God upon all who would live well simply by nature or of their own volition. 
He makes them to be no better than the obvious sinners. Indeed, he says that they are stubborn and unrepentant. In chapter 3, he throws them all together in a heap and says that one is like the other. They are all sinners before God. Only the Jews have had the word of God. Though not many have believed this word, that word, this does not mean that the faith and truth of God are exhausted. He quotes, incidentally, a verse from Psalm 51, verse 4, that God remains justified in his words. Afterward, he comes back to this again and proves also by Scripture that all men are sinners and that by the works of the law, nobody is justified, but that the law was given only that sin might be known. Then he begins to teach the right way by which men must be justified and saved. He says they are all sinners making no boast of God, but that they must be justified without merit of their own through faith in Christ, who has merited this for us by his blood and has become for us a mercy seat of God. God forgives all former sins to demonstrate that we are helped only by his righteousness, which he grants in faith, and which was revealed at that time through the gospel and was witnessed to beforehand by the law and the prophets. Thus the law is upheld by faith, though the works of the law are thereby put down together with the boasting of them. After the first three chapters, in which sin is revealed and faith's way to righteousness is taught, St. Paul begins in chapter 4 to meet certain remonstrances and objections. First, he takes up the one that all men commonly make when they hear that faith justifies without works. They say, are we then to do no good works? Therefore, he, takes himself, he himself takes up the case of Abraham and asks, what did Abraham accomplish then with his good works? Were they all in vain? Were his works of no use? He concludes that Abraham was justified by faith alone, without any works, so much so that the scriptures in Genesis 15.6 declare that he was justified by faith alone even before the work of circumcision. But if the work of circumcision contributed nothing to his righteousness, though God had commanded it and it was a good work of obedience, then surely no other good work will contribute anything to righteousness. Rather, as Abraham's circumcision was an external sign by which he showed the righteousness that was already his in faith, so all good works are only external signs which flow out of faith. Like good fruit, they demonstrate that a person is already inwardly righteous before God. With this powerful illustration from the scriptures, St. Paul confirms the doctrine of faith which he had set forth in chapter 3. He cites also another witness, David, who says in Psalm 32, 1-2, that a man is justified without works, although he does not remain without works when he has been justified. Then, he gives the illustration a broader application, setting it over against all other works of the law. He concludes that the Jews cannot be Abraham's heirs merely because of their blood, still less because of the works of the law. They must inherit Abraham's faith if they would be true heirs. For before the law, before the law of Moses and the law of circumcision, Abraham was justified by faith and called the father of all believers. Moreover, the law brings about wrath rather than grace because no one keeps the law out of love for it and pleasure in it. What comes by the works of the law is thus disfavor rather than grace. Therefore, faith alone must obtain the grace promised to Abraham. For these examples too were written for our sakes that we too should believe. In chapter 5, he comes to the fruits and works of faith, such as peace, joy, love to God and to every man, as well as confidence, assurance, boldness, courage, and hope amid tribulation and suffering. For all this follows, 
If faith be true because of the superabundant goodness that God shows us in Christ, causing Christ to die for us before we could ask it of him, indeed while we were still enemies, thus we have it that faith justifies without any works, and yet it does not follow that men are therefore to do no good works, but rather that the genuine works will not be lacking. Of these the work righteousness saints know nothing. They dream up works of their own in which there is no peace, joy, confidence, love, hope, boldness, or any of the qualities of true Christian work and faith. After this, he digresses and makes a pleasant excursion, telling whence comes sin and righteousness, death and life, and comparing Adam and Christ. He means to say that Christ had to come as a second Adam, bequeathing his righteousness to us through a spiritual, new spiritual birth and faith, just as the first Adam bequeathed sin to us through the old fleshly birth. Thus he declares and proves that no one by his own works can raise himself out of sin into righteousness any more than he can prevent the birth of his own body. This is proved also by the fact that the divine law, which ought to assist toward righteousness, if anything can, has not only not helped, but has even increased sin. For the more the law forbids, the more our evil nature hates the law, and the more it wants to give rein to its own lust. Thus the law makes Christ all the more necessary, and more grace is needed to help our nature. So stopping real quick there, you can see what Luther's doing, right? He's walking us through the book of Romans, and he's helping us to see the nature of sin, uh, the redemption in Christ. He uses the examples of Abraham and David in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he talks about how we get all of these fruits of faith, all these things, and how it all comes by grace in Christ, who is, who is a second Adam. Right? He compares Adam and Christ and shows how everything that we get in Christ is gift and, and changes us and does lead to good works, but we are not saved because of them. And you can always see that Luther here is writing against people who are saying, well, hang on here, you know, um, you're saying we don't need to do any good works in order to be saved. And Luther's saying, well, yeah, but because we've been saved, we actually do good works. And notice what he also says. He says the people who are saying that you need to do good works in order to be saved, they actually never do any good works that are really good. They do things that maybe men applaud, but they're not really good things. So that's what he's getting at. So now we're going to go into chapter 6 with Luther, where he's going to summarize it for us here. In chapter 6, he takes up the special work of faith, the conflict of the spirit with the flesh for the complete slaying of the sin and lust that remain after we are justified. He teaches us that we are not by faith so freed from sin that we can be idle, slack, and careless, as though there were no longer any sin in us. Sin is present but it is no longer reckoned for our condemnation because of the faith that is struggling against it. Therefore, we have enough to do all our life long in taming the body, slaying its lusts and compelling its members to obey the spirit and not the lusts. Thus we become like the death and resurrection of Christ and complete our baptism, which signifies the death of sin and the new life of grace until we are entirely purified of sin and even our bodies rise again with Christ and live forever. All this we can do, he says, because we are under grace and not under law. He himself explains what this means. To be without the law is not the same thing as to have no laws and to be able to do what one pleases. Rather, we are under the law when, without grace, we occupy ourselves with the works of the law. Then, sin certainly rules us through the law, for no one loves the law by nature, and that is great sin. Grace, however, makes the law dear to us. 
then sin is no longer present and the law is no longer against us, but one with us. This is the true freedom from sin and the law. He writes about this down to the end of the chapter, saying that it is a freedom only to do good with pleasure and to live well without the compulsion of the law. Therefore, this freedom is a spiritual freedom, which does not overthrow the law, but presents what the law demands, namely pleasure in the law and love for it, whereby the law is quieted and no longer drives men or makes uh, demands of them. It is just as if you owed a debt to your overlord and could not pay it. There are two ways in which you could rid yourself of the debt. Either he would take nothing from you and would tear up the account, or some good man would pay it for you and give you the means to satisfy the account. It is in this latter way that Christ has made us free from the law. Our freedom is, therefore, no carefree fleshly freedom which is not obligated to do anything, but a freedom that does many works of all kinds and is free of the demands and obligations of the law. In chapter 7, he supports this with an analogy from married life. When a man dies, his wife is also alone, and thus the one is released entirely from the other. Not that the wife cannot or ought not take another husband, but rather that she is now, for the first time, really free to take another, something which she could not do previously before she was free from her husband. So our conscience is bound to the law, under the old man of sin, When he is slain by the Spirit, then the conscience is free, and the one is released from the other. Not that the conscience is to do nothing, but rather that it is now for the first time really free to hold fast to Christ, the second husband, and bring forth the fruit of life. Then he depicts more fully the nature of sin and of the law, how by means of the law sin now stirs and becomes mighty. The old man comes to hate the law all the more because he cannot pay what the law demands. Sin is his nature, and of himself he can do nothing but sin. Therefore, the law to him is death and torment. Not that the law is bad, but the old man's evil nature cannot endure the good, and the law demands good of him. Just as a sick man cannot stand it when he is required to run and jump and do the works of a well man. Therefore, St. Paul here concludes that the law correctly understood and thoroughly grasped, does nothing more than to remind us of our sin and to slay us by it, making us liable to eternal wrath. All this is fully learned and experienced by our conscience when it is really struck by the law. Therefore, a person must have something other than the law, something more than the law to make him righteous and save him. But they who do not correctly understand the law are blind. They go ahead in their presumption, thinking to satisfy the law by means of their deeds, not knowing how much the law demands, namely, a willing and happy heart. Therefore, they do not see Moses clearly. The veil is put between them and him and covers them. Then he shows how spirit and flesh struggle with one another in a man. He uses himself as an example in order that we may learn how properly to understand the work of slaying sin within us. He calls both the spirit and the flesh laws. For just as it is the nature of the divine law to drive men and make demands of them, so the flesh drives men and makes demands. It rages against the spirit and will have its own way. The spirit in turn drives men and makes demands contrary to the flesh and will have its own way. This tension lasts in us as long as we live, though in one person it is greater and another less, according as the spirit or the flesh is stronger." Nevertheless, the whole man is himself both spirit and flesh, and he fights with himself until he becomes wholly spiritual. 
Now, so those are chapter six and seven, those fightings going on within us. Luther now turns in chapter eight to summarize this for us. He says in chapter eight, he comforts these fighters, telling them that this flesh does not condemn them. He shows further what the nature of flesh and spirit is and how the spirit comes from Christ. Christ has given us his Holy Spirit. He makes us spiritual and subdues the flesh and assures us that we are still God's children. However hard sin may be raging within us, so long as we follow the spirit and resist sin to slay it. Since, however, nothing else is so good for the mortifying of the flesh as the cross and suffering, he comforts us in suffering with the spirit, with the support of the spirit of love and of the whole creation, namely that the spirit sighs within us and the creation longs with with us that we may be rid of the flesh and of sin. So we see that these three chapters drive home the, the talking about chapter six through eight, drive home the one task of faith, which is to slay the old Adam and subdue the flesh. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he teaches of God's eternal predestination, out of which originally proceeds who shall believe or not, who can or cannot get rid of sin, in order that our salvation may be taken entirely out of our hands and put in the hand of God alone. And this, too, is utterly necessary, for we are so weak and uncertain that if it depended on us, not even a single person would be saved. The devil would surely overpower us all. But since God is dependable, his predestination cannot fail, and no one can withstand him. We still have hope in the face of sin. Here now, for once we must put a stop to those wicked and high-flying spirits who first apply their own reason to this matter. They begin at the top to search the abyss of divine predestination and worry in vain about whether they are predestined. They are bound to plunge to their own destruction, either through despair or through throwing caution to the winds. Now, that's very important. Luther, first of all, you notice he believes that this passage, he talks about passage 9 and 10, 11. These are, this is teaching God's eternal predestination. But he's also telling, he says it's a good thing because God takes our salvation entirely out of our hands and puts it in his own. And this is good because God is dependable. We can trust him. But then he also says this, that there are some people who, they, they don't use this doctrine rightly. They start with predestination and wonder whether or not they've been predestined, whether or not they're one of the people, uh, you know, whether or not um, they, they are believers or not. And they start with God's, God's predestining before, before the creation of the world. And Luther says, this is the wrong way to go about it. God has predestined people, but you don't get, you don't, you don't, um, you don't need to apply your reason to trying to go and figure all that out right now. He says, this is the right way to do it. He says this, but you had better follow the order of this epistle. Worry first about Christ and the gospel, that you may recognize your sin and his grace. Then fight your sin, as the first eight chapters here have taught. Then, when you have reached the eighth chapter and are under the cross and suffering, this will teach you correctly a predestination in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and how comforting it is. For in the absence of suffering and the cross and the perils of death, one cannot deal with predestination without harm and without secret anger against God. The old Adam must first die before he can tolerate this thing and drink the strong wine. Therefore, beware that you do not drink wine while you are still a suckling. There is a limit, a time, and an age for every doctrine. In chapter 12, he teaches what true worship is and makes all Christians priests. They are to offer not money or cattle as under the law, but their own bodies with slaying of the lusts. 
Then he describes the outward conduct of Christians under the spiritual government, telling how they are to teach, preach, rule, serve, give, suffer, suffer, love, live, and act toward friend, foe, and all men. These are the works that a Christian does, for as has been said, faith takes no holidays. That's really good, isn't it? Faith takes no holidays. In chapter 13, he teaches honor and obedience to worldly government. Although worldly government does not make people righteous before God, nevertheless, it is instituted in order to accomplish at least this much, that the good may have outward peace and protection, and the bad may not be free to do evil in peace and quietness and without fear. Therefore, the good too are to honor honor it, even though they themselves do not need it. Finally, he comprehends it all in love and sums it up in the example of Christ as he has done for us, we are also to, to do, following in his footsteps. In chapter 14, he teaches that consciences weak in faith are to be led gently, spared so that we do not use our Christian freedom for doing harm, but for the assistance of the weak. For where that is not done, the result is discord and contempt for the gospel. And the gospel is the all-important thing. Thus, it is better to yield a little to the weak in faith until they grow stronger than to have the teaching of the gospel come to nothing. And this work is a peculiar work of love, for which there is great need even now, when with the eating of meat and other liberties, men are rudely and roughly and needlessly shaking their weak consciences before they know the truth. In chapter 15, he sets up Christ as an example. We are to tolerate also those other weak ones who fail in other ways, in open sins or in unpleasing habits. We are not to cast them off, but to bear with them until they grow, too grow better. For so Christ has done with us and still does every day. He bears with our many faults and bad habits and with all our imperfections and helps us constantly. Then at the end, he prays for them, praises them, and commends them to God. He speaks of his own office and of his preaching, and asks them kindly for a contribution to the poor at Jerusalem. All that he speaks of or deals with is pure love. The last chapter is a chapter of greetings, but he mingles with them a noble warning against the doctrines of men, which break in alongside the teaching of the gospel and cause offense. It is as if he had certainly foreseen that out of Rome and through the Romans would come the seductive and offensive canons and decretals and the whole squirming mass of human laws and commandments, which have now drowned the whole world and wiped out this epistle and all the holy scriptures along with the spirit and faith itself, so that nothing remains any more except the idol, belly, whose servants St. Paul here rebukes. God save us from them. Amen. You can tell Paul that Luther there is thinking about the uh, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church at his time, um, and thinking about that's what he's saying. He said all the the canons and the decretals, all of that stuff um, has come against the gospel, and so he's he's saying you know Paul could foresee all that. That's what he's talking about there. The last paragraph in this epistle, we thus find most abundantly the things that a Christian ought to know, namely what is law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace faith, righteousness, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. And also how we are to conduct ourselves toward everyone, be he righteous or sinner, strong or weak, friend or foe, and even toward our own selves. Moreover, this is all ably supported with scripture and proved by St. Paul's own example and that of the prophets, so that one could not wish for anything more. Therefore, it appears that he wanted in this one epistle to sum up briefly the whole Christian and evangelical doctrine and to prepare an introduction to the entire Old Testament. For without doubt, whoever has this epistle well in his heart 
has with him the light and power of the Old Testament. Therefore, let every Christian be familiar with it and exercise himself in it continually. To this end, may God give his grace. Amen. Well, that's Luther's introduction, preface to the Epistle to the Romans. I see I've gone 43 minutes now. So um, I hope it's been uh, interesting to you. Um, You can see the gospel saturated nature of Luther's preaching and teaching and uh, just how how wonderful it really was. And, and this is why we don't agree with Luther on everything. Um, uh, Luther was a fallible man. But on the other hand, we, we are inheritors. We have inherited uh, the gospel that he recovered, um, which was the gospel that was simply written down in Holy Scripture, uh, written by St. Paul, and uh, comes through our Lord Jesus Christ and was uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so that is the gospel we preach and proclaim. And I think that's a very helpful introduction to Romans to help us to think about these things and those words found in it. And if we understood those things, we would have a very good basic grasp of what Christianity is all about. It's all about Christ, all about him. Thank you for listening. And uh, like I said, thanks for uh, uh uh, you know, allowing me to do this and, uh, and hope maybe somebody out there will get some benefit uh, from listening to uh, Dr. Luther. Take care. God bless.